0: Hey, Dark Listeners, I'm your host, Kasha Patel. This episode, we're talking about a big scandal in a small town in Germany, and we're talking to Carl Zimmer about intelligence as something you can inherit or not. But first, we have a very special guest that I want all of you to meet. She's so excited, her big eyes. That is my dog, Sadie. I've been fostering her for about almost two months now. She's actually a rescue dog, so we don't quite know her history, but I can tell you that she has a lot of separation anxiety, and basically, she's still learning how to be a dog. Now, I never had a dog growing up, so uh, just like she needs to learn how to be a dog, I need to learn how to be a dog owner. So ever since I got Sadie, I've been taking her to the dog trainer. And even the dog trainer says that Sadie is a very special case because of her anxiety issues. My dog trainer actually recommended something to help keep her calm. She suggested I try a substance called cannabidiol, as in cannabis, as in, yes, this comes from a marijuana plant. And I'm thinking, is this actually a thing? People giving something from a marijuana plant to their dog? I went online and I googled CBD. And there's actually a lot of information about it for humans. In fact, the FDA just approved an anti-seizure medication with CBD in humans. But I couldn't find too much about giving CBD to dogs. So I want to know, is this safe? Does it work? So who am I gonna call? Undark columnist Michael Schulson. He actually came over to my house to play with Sadie and vetted some of the research for me, pun intended. Hey Michael, how's it going? It's going well, how are you doing? Good. So tell me a little bit about your dog. Yeah, she's a beautiful black, some kind of pit bull mix thing.
1: Sadie is a beautiful dog.
0: And when she looks up at you, she's always smiling. and She's always excited. And I think she's more playful than other puppies, which is fun until you don't want to play with her anymore. I can't just like not watch her because then she takes Brakes. a shoe and then she starts eating it. I have lost five pairs of shoes, expensive window blinds, oh, no. a big bottle of soy sauce.
1: <laughs> soy sauce?
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so people tell me like, put her in the crate and none of this will happen. Well, we put her in the crate. I don't know how she managed to get out of it, but she like chewed up the plastic at the bottom and then nudged her way out. And then she was free in the house and then she did some destruction there. She actually hurt her little paw and she got a little bruise on her nose because she was coming out of the crate. So it's really important that while she's in the crate, she stays calm and she understands that, hey, this isn't a bad place, we're not punishing you. I realize, like, the answer is the dog needs better training, but we're working on that. But, like, what do you do in the short term?
1: Wow. So it sounds like, so your main goal here is to try to find a way for her to feel more comfortable in the crate because that's going to be part of her life. And the way that she's reacting to it right now sounds potentially dangerous for her and for your bottles of soy sauce.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I care more about her little paw. She was looking at for days. I don't know. Yeah, what
1: do you do? I mean, people give their dog a Benadryl.
0: My dog trainer told me there's something called CBD, which is part of a marijuana plant, but the non-psychoactive part. So it's not the THC part, but it's the other part of it that still gives you a calming effect. Maybe this could be a way to crate train her better if I give her... The CBD treat, it comes in a little treat. Um, I give her that, wait 15 minutes, and then put her in the crate and see if she freaks out.
1: Interesting. So this is, so to be clear, you're not getting your dog stoned.
0: No. Well,
1: it's because he does no. <laughs> is it psychoactive? Yeah, maybe? that's what I was
0: going to say. Like, yeah. I don't know what the, def- it depends on what your definition of stoned is, I guess. Why I kind of brought you into this is because you have a lot of experience looking at scientific studies or like how the media uh, portrays it and what's overhyped and what's not. And I am just a girl with a dog who wants to make her dog feel better and not hurt herself trying to get out of the crate and just become the better domesticated dog that we all know. So how... I don't know where to start with CBD. Like, what can I believe?
1: You're not trying to send your dog on some kind of crazy dog trip. (laughs) No. Um, Just... Trying to calm her down a little bit, right? And we should note here that marijuana, like the plant marijuana, in large quantities can be really toxic for dogs. So really? don't just go, yes, yeah, so like don't go feeding marijuana to dogs. But th- th- these are these are products that are made for canines, right? That people are using that seem that people are saying seem to be having some kind of effect. Some feeding a marijuana extract to your dog is like the purest 2018 thing ever. It sounds kind of wild. It is maybe effective. It is designed to spread really quickly on social media. Um, and it clearly is spreading really fast by word of mouth. Um, and what's promising about it, like a lot of medical marijuana treatments, is that people are using it and saying this, hey, this works. And certainly there's an enormous amount of research on the medical effects of different marijuana byproducts, a lot of which is really promising. Um, But this also kind of has some of the characteristics of something that could be hype. It's spreading by word of mouth. It's very lightly regulated. There's not that much research right now on what happens when you give your dog CBD before putting it in its crate.
0: Right. You're getting all this information thrown at you from all these different sources, some of which are trusted people in your life. And how do I balance all these pieces of evidence to come to a decision? Some sources are saying, yes, it works. No, it doesn't work. Or I don't know. We don't have enough evidence. Why don't you try it out and see what happens?
1: I mean, I think that there's always these kind of two big questions. One is, Okay, I've heard about this crazy potential miracle cure that comes from something that actually sounds maybe legit. The first question is, am I going to hurt myself or somebody else or my pet by using it, right? And certainly there's peer-reviewed research that suggests that this is not bad for your dog and that this is not causing problems and that it may have a lot of different really positive medical outcomes. Um, And then I think the second question is, how much do I want to, you know, how comfortable am I trying something that is mostly based on anecdotal evidence or where the research is kind of scant or where regulation is not that heavy? Um, And people's answers to those questions really differ radically, right? I mean, I think some people are really gung-ho about trying new experiments um, or trying new treatments that aren't necessarily that well-vetted. I think some people are are more cautious. Um, And it's always good to remember, I think, especially that things that are, you know, a little bit experimental... Things that can be sold as miracle cures can also be dangerous, right? Uh, But I feel like here there's, you know, there seems to be vets using it and other people using it.
0: Well, thank you, Michael, for joining me and my dog. So I am curious to know what happens. And my dog trainer does give this to her dogs all the time, especially during thunderstorms, because her pit bulls get very nervous. So i decided to try it out i gave sadie two milligrams of the cbd and a hemp biscuit and put her in her crate and it didn't really work she still kind of clawed and whined but then the next night she was keeping me up so i gave her some more cbd and she fell asleep at my feet so maybe it worked as you can imagine i'd like some more information so i'll be looking out for scientific research in hopes of finding more evidence for a calmer Sadie. Anya Kriega is a freelance journalist based in Berlin and reports on the environment, science, and society. She was a night science journalism fellow in 2015 and 2016. Today, she actually brings us an interesting story about the difficulty of recycling something that never really goes away. Welcome,
2: Anya. Hi, Kasia. Okay, I'm intrigued. What's going on in this little town? So it was a huge scandal, actually. Um, I went to this little town of Schleswig, and there was a major leak that flooded the town in plastic. And now that has opened up a pretty big debate One question is, who is responsible in this case? And the other one is a bigger one, which is, can we establish a truly circular economy when certain materials are mixed, like in this case, plastics and food waste? Wait, what do you mean by circular economy? Um, Circular economy is this idea that all the waste that we produce get reused into a new product. So the thing is, the interesting thing about this story is that They try to do a really good thing. Um, They try to produce biogas um, from sewage sludge in a wastewater treatment plant, which makes sense. You know, it's like sort of renewable energy. But as it turns out, materials like plastic can interfere with that and gum up the works.
0: Oh, well, let's take a listen.
2: The Schlei is an arm of the Baltic Sea, a glittering body of water surrounded by a lush landscape of trees and grasses. It's a natural park where critters crawl and rare birds nest. I've come here to meet Rainer Borcherting, a local biologist.
1: Das ist das ist insofern ganz We're
2: standing right by the water, searching the ground. And between the wet, muddy remnants of old reeds, we still find them, small pieces of plastics. We find packaging torn to shreds and a snippet with part of a barcode. Not that unusual, right? But these particular bits of plastic are actually evidence in a criminal investigation and a corporate blame fest. Hundreds of thousands of these pieces had entered the Schlei, Borcherding tells me. That was in early March. They piled up knee-high along the shoreline, according to media reports. The shore was so permeated with plastic, so inseparable, the workers had to remove a lot of the soil and plants as well. That damaged the habitat of some of the rare birds that nest here.
0: Wie soll ich das
2: Local teacher Monika Fertens began reporting plastics on her waterfront property two years ago. But nothing happened. She suspected the town's wastewater treatment plant was the source but it wasn't until the major plastic flood this spring that the local government realized it was dealing with a leak. Wir haben die Kläranlage Schleswig
3: zunächst mal uh, ausgeschlossen. Torsten
2: Roos, who heads the district's environmental department, tells me he first ruled out the water facility. He and his experts were convinced the sophisticated filters at the plant would have nabbed any plastic bits. And the test results for the wastewater treatment had always been good. But no one ever tested the water for plastics. The problem started with a good idea. The people at the wastewater treatment plant decided to turn waste into biogas. That way they could make good use of the sewage sludge to produce heat and energy. To make it work, the plant needed extra raw material. So they bought a slurry of old groceries, several truckloads worth a day. But that food waste was mixed with shredded pieces of packaging material, plastic shreds that made it past all the plant's cleaning filters. To see for myself, I visit the Schleswig Wastewater Treatment Plant. Their first filter, right at the start, is a three millimeter rake that filters out all the things people throw into their toilets and sinks. Toilet paper, tampons, the occasional undie or sock, all the good stuff. And yes, it's smelly. The water then runs through several stages of cleaning, mechanical, biological and finally the four meter thick sand filter. Here the water trickles up through the sand in deep tanks before spilling into a dig that empties into the Schlei estuary. I can see the small plastic shreds floating on the surface of the tanks. A silver and newly installed 2 millimeter sieve now catches them.
3: Meine Mitarbeiter haben also ja auch bestätigt, dass die sichtbar nicht waren, zumal es um zu 90 % 99 % transparente Kunststoffe sich handelt.
2: Wolfgang Schofs is the director of the municipal utilities, and he almost cancels our interview. He tells me he had no idea there was a problem, saying most of the plastic pieces were transparent and carried away quickly in the fast current. Schofs has now cancelled the deliveries from the supplier of the food waste, ReFood. I searched the company online and find their English commercial. ReFood!
3: Turning yesterday's food waste into tomorrow's energy. Refood can collect any type of food waste, be it products still in packaging, liquids or bulk quantities. If the collected waste includes packaged food, this is handled through a dedicated process.
2: I call Marcel Dierichs, the spokesman for Refood, to learn more.
3: Hello, Herr, Dierich.
2: Herr Dierichs, Anja Krieger. Hello, schönen
4: guten Morgen. Grüße
2: Sie. Derichs explains to me that ReFood uses a special machine that can separate 98% of the packaging. The remaining 2% is shredded with the food into the slurry. That plastic needs to be filtered after the biogas production, as was stated in their contract with the treatment plant, Derichs argues. I ask him if it was possible to sort the waste in advance to remove all the plastic.
3: In the industrial scale, uh
2: D'Erich says that on an industrial scale and with huge quantities, it's just not possible to manually sort the waste. It wouldn't be economically viable. The wastewater treatment plant's previous supplier did manually separate food waste from its packaging. Before refood, the plant got their food waste from an old pig farmer. The director told me that the farmer sorted grocery waste and restaurant leftovers so meticulously that the owners could swing by and pick up forks they had accidentally thrown away. But the old farmer gave up when the plant wouldn't pay enough money to make it worth it. And then Refood took over. It is still unclear how long plastics leaked into the Schlei and how much ended up in the water. Was it under a ton or several? over months or even years? The State Office of Criminal Investigation is now examining who's responsible. And both parties will fight over an ambiguous contract they signed. But one thing is already clear. Building a circular economy that recycles and reuses all waste gets very complicated when plastics enter the cycle. Such a ubiquitous, persistent material is awfully hard to get rid of.
0: That was our reporter Anya Krieger from Germany. Now to further complicate the issue, the plastic didn't only contaminate the water. Sludge from the biogas tower was also meant to be sold to farmers as fertilizer. And some of that plastic may have been spread onto the fields. In Germany, the story has actually started a big discussion now on whether it can be allowed to shred food waste and packaging together. Now let's travel back to our fifth grade science class and revisit our understanding of heredity. To take us on this journey is Senior Editor David Corcoran. David, glad to have you back.
3: Hi, Kasha. it's nice to be back.
0: What story have you brought us today?
3: This time uh, we'll be talking with Carl Zimmer. Carl is a science columnist for the New York Times. I was actually his editor uh, a few years ago when I was the editor of uh, Science Times. Uh, He uh, is also a prolific book author, and he's just written a great book about uh, heredity. Uh, The title is She Has Her Mother's Laugh, and we'll be taking a deep dive into uh, one chapter of that book.
0: Oh, this should be fun to hear editor versus writer talking.
3: (laughs) Well, you know, it's not too confrontational. (laughs) Carl, welcome. Thanks for having me. So why did you decide to write this book?
4: I guess I've always been fascinated by heredity, and I don't think I'm alone in that. I mean, I think we are all wondering what we got from our parents and our distant ancestors. And, you know, for those of
3: us who have kids, uh, we look at our kids and wonder what they've gotten from us. I just love this title. She has her mother's laugh. Uh, What does it refer to?
4: We ascribe things to uh, the previous generation as where you got something from. So where'd you get that laugh or your height or your blue eyes or your, I don't know, love of heavy metal music? Who knows? I mean, like it's amazing, Mm -hmm. you know, the the things that people will ascribe to heredity. And it's not just going back one generation. Um, You know, it's very common for people to say, oh, yeah, you know, your great grandfather did that, too. And there's supposed to be a connection there. And. You know we we feel like there must be a connection and we really search for it and i think that that's one of the things that drives the millions of people who are getting genetic testing from places like 23andme we have this incredible passion to understand how we're connected to the past Uh, and you know science can actually help us to understand uh the reality of that but can also turn our intuitions upside down.
3: Are there traits that seem like they ought to be influenced by heredity, but actually are not?
4: Well, I think that we are really looking hard for connections between ourselves and our parents and previous generations. Uh, And I, I think we have to be on our guard that we're just trying to do pattern matching, I mean, in fact, you know, if you laugh like your mother does, I mean, maybe there's something with genetics, but no one's actually ever looked. <laughs> uh, you may have just grown up listening to your mother laugh and you have unconsciously sort of patterned your laugh after her. Um, and, you, you know, there, there are clearly uh, unquestionable forms of, of very simple genetic inheritance that you can look to. Um, so with color blindness, for example, um, but there are just lots of other things in life that are coincidences, or even if there is a genetic influence, it's incredibly faint, and uh, it doesn't really have that much to do with why you are the way you are. And you know, I, I think that uh, as we look at our you know test results from Twenty Three and Me and other DNA testing companies. You know, we need to sort of bear that in mind that um, just because we can look at a catalog of all these different variants that are associated with different things doesn't necessarily mean that they add up to who we are in our entirety. You know, um, we're, we're more than a, that kind of simple version of heredity.
3: It is such a big subject, heredity. Um, so many ways to get into it. How did you get your arms around it?
4: I guess I wanted to uh, just address uh, some basic questions. Uh, and they're big questions, but I, they, they did help me focus, just to say, well, what what is heredity? And I guess by that, I mean, what does it mean to us and to different cultures and different periods in history? And you go back like 500 years like people didn't talk about heredity the way we do you know the way we define our kin based on genes well you know that's kind of a fallacy too and in a lot of cultures that doesn't really factor into it so much uh, and so once i focused on their and their history then i wanted to talk about sort of the present day like with our scientific tools uh what are we learning about heredity and how does Science match up with what we hope heredity will tell us, uh, and then finally to look at the future to say, you know, we have this power to start to control some parts of heredity. Uh, what does that mean for the future, and and what what will the future look like in terms of generations that will be influenced by what we do today?
3: So many things we could uh, talk about, but I would like to focus on chapter three of your book. Um, which deals with this very troubling topic of heredity and intelligence. Tell us about Emma Wolverton.
4: Emma Wolverton was born in New Jersey in 1888, and she had a very troubled childhood. Her mother uh, was abandoned by her husband. Um, She had a serious drinking problem, and uh, a man uh, agreed to marry Emma Wolverton's mother if she got rid of her other kids, including Emma. So one day, Emma ends up um, at the doorstep of the Vineland Training School, which is was called a, an institution for the quote-unquote feeble-minded. Uh, she's brought there at age eight, uh, and they very quickly decide that she is indeed feeble-minded. Um, they were told that she was trouble at school, and I guess that was enough for them. You know, she's cut off from society, um, but she's treated decently. You know, She lives in clean cottages and learns how to read and how to do various chores and, and carpentry and so on. Um, and then one day in 1906, uh, someone new arrives to work at the school. Uh, his name is Henry Goddard, and he is a psychologist. And Goddard has these ideas about how to measure intelligence in children the same way you might measure height or blood pressure. He wants to give people a number. And this is the dawn of intelligence testing. So he starts testing all the kids at the school, including Emma Wolverton. And he judges that she is slightly below average. And so Henry Goddard invents the word moron for emma wolverton and some other kids at the violent training school at the very same time he starts to get interested in this brand new science of genetics because all of a sudden in the early 1900s it, it looks as if the mysteries of heredity have finally been cracked scientists have discovered that there are these things called genes and they're passed down from one generation to the next in eggs and sperm there's nothing in experience that can change them So Goddard starts doing lots of research on the genealogy of uh, students, and in Emma Wolverton's case, he really feels convinced that her genealogy is is categorical proof that feeble-mindedness is inherited just through genes, maybe just one gene, and so therefore you can know that uh, these these morons, these idiots as they were called, uh, just have a hereditary deficiency that nothing can fix. Uh, And so he publishes a book about Emma Wolverton called The Calicac Family. He hides her name, um, and uh, this becomes a huge bestseller, incredibly powerful and and influential. It changes how people think about heredity, and it also changes how people think about uh, social problems, problems like like poverty, uh, like child abuse. All these things just get kind of lumped under bad genes, basically.
3: And it later turned out, didn't it, that the whole basis for um, the uh, diagnosis of uh, Emma Wolverton's family as feeble-minded was, uh, was wrong in the first place?
4: Yeah, the whole thing was a big fake. And, and it's kind of astonishing to look back at it. So what Goddard did was send these field workers out to various parts of New Jersey to talk to the relatives of his students, and uh, they would draw genealogies and try to work out as big a pedigree as possible and basically if there was any evidence that someone was feeble minded they were marked as feeble minded that could include like stealing a horse it's a, it's <laughs> mm. it's it's kind of absurd looking at it now you know where when you know human genetics is in a far more sophisticated situation but that's what people were doing in the early 1900s and this was considered cutting edge in any case in Emma Wolverton's genealogy Uh, the field worker who was exploring her relatives thought she had discovered this incredible story, which is that if you go back several generations in Emma's family, you get to uh, a man who fought in the Revolutionary War. And during the fighting, he got drunk at a tavern one night and slept with a feeble-minded woman who got pregnant And then she produced a long line of feeble-minded descendants, including Emma Wolverton. But later, this same soldier uh, married an upstanding good woman, and, and they had lots of upstanding good children. And generation after generation, they were pillars of society, university presidents, and all the rest. And so Goddard really felt like this was a perfect natural experiment and that it showed that the heredity of intelligence was a fact it turns out that uh all of that stuff that he that he claimed happened in the revolutionary war never happened the field workers <laughs> got confused they the the uh, revolutionary war soldier and his supposed feeble-minded son were actually second or third cousins like they had never actually Ah. met Uh, it was just a confusion about names you know because this field worker was basically going to like people in their 70s or 80s and asking them about you know their great great grandparents, uh, and you know obviously <laughs> the stories can be wrong, the memories are dim, and it just in recent decades, genealogists have gone back and done research of their own and said, "Look, this is this is all bogus." So this 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 exquisite fundamental experiment in human heredity was a big fake.
3: Yeah, the Calicac book, uh, you write, led to some really grotesque social policies. Um, It's hard to believe now, but throughout most of the 20th century, many respected scientists and policymakers, including the then governor of New Jersey, who later became president of the United States, uh, Woodrow Wilson, believed in the science called eugenics. Um, Can you talk about how that, uh, that idea of eugenics was finally discredited? sure so eugenics actually has its roots in the late
4: 1800s even before the dawn of genetics Um, a british scientist named francis galton is arguing at the time that traits like intelligence are totally hereditary and so that means that you could actually make society a better place by determining who has kids and who doesn't and so he wanted to encourage families with what he would call genius to have lots of kids. And in a century or two, society would be uh, what he would call a galaxy of genius. Um, In the United States, people like Henry Goddard uh, take a much darker view of eugenics. They feel that it's more important to prevent some people from reproducing, people like Emma Wolverton. And they do, as you say, lobby for the passage of sterilization laws Um, immigration policy gets set up to prevent people from countries like italy or russia from coming into the united states because they are deemed to be uh, feeble-minded in this hereditary sense of the word and of course nazis uh, pick up a lot of sort of american eugenics and and embrace it. You know, the Kallikak family was translated into German and was very popular among German intellectual circles. And they then claim that as justification not for just sterilization, but also extermination. Um, but the fact was that even in the 1920s people were looking at the Kalakak family story and kind of thinking, well, this doesn't really add up. Uh, and it became clear through basic studies on genetics that um, you cannot boil down something as complex as intelligence to a single gene or even a couple genes. Uh, and intelligence testing uh, was very, very crude at the time. To think that you could just simply give people these simple tests and uh, ask a few questions about their relatives and understand the heredity of intelligence was just absurd. Uh, and even, even by the 1930s in the United States and in Britain, this kind of eugenics view of intelligence was falling apart. And certainly by the end of World War II, nobody wanted to have anything to do with eugenics. Um, you know, eugenics was in the title of journals and, you know, departments of eugenics uh, had eugenics in their name. And they all basically, you know, uh, put up new signs. Um, so instead of eugenics, it would be human genetics. Uh, it just basically eugenics kind of went out the door.
3: So is there any connection at all between genes and intelligence or lack of intelligence? What do we know about that?
4: So genes are definitely part of the story of intelligence, but just one part. And in the environment in which we grow up uh, is incredibly important as well. So it's... it's- really nothing like what uh someone like henry goddard thought i mean he was thinking in the very simple sort of gregor mendel terms like that you have one gene and one trait and it's really nothing like that at all genes for the most part uh don't switch on and off uh traits uh, in us like some simple light switch you know i mean genes uh encode proteins and if you have variations In those genes, the proteins might have slightly different shapes, which means that they might work differently. And so they can have influences on lots of different traits. And those influences only really become clear when you look at lots and lots of people. And you can see on a population level that there's variation in something like intelligence that has a connection to variations in genes. so that doesn't mean that you can look at your own genome and predict how you're going to do on an intelligence test. That's just not in the cards. Nevertheless, there are genes, uh, hundreds of genes now that have been identified that have a statistical connection to how people do on intelligence tests. Uh, that connection is is really really tiny. So you know these these genes, for the most part. Uh, may nudge uh, an IQ test, you know, maybe 0.1 points, something like that. Um, so, so each gene is incredibly weak, but it, you know, it, it may play a role in how many branches and neurons sprouts in your brain, or something like that.
3: And this is something we learn over and over again in in your book that the, the whole idea of heredity keeps changing over time. Where would you say we are now in our understanding of this subject, and and what is left to be learned?
4: Well, you know, if if you look over the past century, uh, it's a complete revolution. Uh, you know, we can we can trace individual genes, individual mutations, down through the generations. I mean, we can even look at you know Neanderthal fossils, uh, and scientists can pull DNA out of them and can discover that actually the, some of those genes are still in living people today. So it's incredible how much we know. And yet um, you, you realize when you really drill into this stuff that um, it, it creates a whole new set of questions. So for part of my book, I got my genome sequenced and went to scientists to have them help me understand it. And one thing I was really curious about was to know exactly what genes I inherited from Neanderthals. And these scientists were able to help me. They showed me a list of hundreds of genes. They said these are genes that you got from Neanderthals. And different people get different genes from Neanderthals. So I have my list, and we started going down the list. I'd say, well, what's this gene? And you know, scientists would say, I've never heard of that gene before. Let me look it up. And we would look at it and it'd be like, scientists don't really even know what this gene does, period. Uh, and so, you know, to say like, oh, well, I have this gene from Neanderthals doesn't yet really tell you much about how that influences you as a living person. Um, it, it's there's still profound mysteries left f- for us to figure out.
3: Carl is a science columnist for the New York Times, and he contributes to many other uh, publications. And he's a member of Undark's advisory board. She Has Her Mother's Laugh is his 12th book, if I'm counting correctly. Uh, Carl, thanks so much. Thank you.
0: That's all, listeners. Thank you for tuning in. We're produced by Lydia Chain, music is by the Undark team, and this week's special guest was my dog, Sadie. I'm your host, Kasha Patel. See you next month.